Hi, this is Trish. Before we get started with Riddles in the Dark episode 2.12, I wanted to let you know that if you are listening to this before September 22, 2013, the Mythgard Institute students are hosting a webathon that day, which is Tolkien Day or Hobbit Day, uh, from 11 a.m. Eastern Time to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, with lots of really interesting uh, segments that will be going on, a lot of uh, listener interactivity, all through the NetMoot. Um, so please, if you're available that day, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find out more details and get updates on that day by going to the MythGuard site, www.mythgard.org, and then go over to the Academy section of the nav bar, and uh, under Academy, select Student Webathon. That's the page that will give you all the information, and it will be updated as we get more and more details. Hopefully, we'll see you on the 22nd. All right, let's go on to Riddles in the Dark, episode Welcome everybody to Riddles in the Dark 2.12, and uh, this is Laura Burkold standing in for Dave Kale. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our humble podcast, and uh, tonight we're going to be talking about dragons. That's right. Modest and understated. See, it sounded just like, I totally thought that was Dave for a second. Yeah. Huh? Like okay. <laughs> that was the That was the anti-Dave. That was the anti-Dave. Um, so, uh, tonight, yes, we are talking about Smaug. We are going to, um, uh, we're, and, you know, we have, there are several questions that, you know, I know have been in my mind for a while about how they're going to characterize Smaug. That's one of my biggest questions. I am, I am really excited if there's, you know, on the, on the shortest of short lists about what I am most interested to see, what I am most looking forward to seeing happen, uh, in film two. Uh, it is going to be how Benedict Cumberpatch does Smaug. I am I am really interested to see that. So I want to um, uh, we're, we're going to talk about some of these things more. But Trish was reminding me just before we started that we had promised in the last episode that we would start off uh, with something else. We would start off with uh, a a review of the first clip of the extended edition that they have released uh, onto YouTube. So I'm going to pull up here. The YouTube clip, we're going to watch it and comment on it together. Boy, can I just say, between Martin Freeman and Hugo Weaving in this clip, the level of facial expression acting is truly off the charts. One thing that this is kind of reminding me of, just sort of seeing um, uh, seeing this clip happening, is kind of 
reminding me of something that I, I didn't even really pay too much attention to when I saw the first film, but that was just how little Elrond we got. I mean, there was the yeah. thing with the, you know, with the, the strange, you know, light table, you know, moon letter thing. Um, but that was not, that was not hugely compelling. Um, and it, we didn't get all that much of it. Um, but uh, anyway, so just watching Elrond talk for that long was uh you know definitely a change and here it is not with your companions Uh, i I shall be missed the truth is that most of them don't think i should be on this journey indeed i've heard that hobbits are very resilient I love that. Really? (laughs) I've also heard they're fond of the comforts of home. Oh, that eyebrow expression was the best. I've heard that it's a word. (laughs) The elves, they will answer both yes and no. Very welcome to stay, if that is your wish. And that's it. We're going to have to do an eyebrow conundrum whose eyebrows are going to be more expressive. Oh, my goodness. And then we also have Thranduil. We also have Lipe. Yeah, Thranduil, yeah. (laughs) Now, I had an interesting take on this when I watched it. You know, the thing he says at the very end, you're welcome to stay. And he he actually says, I understand hobbits are fond of home. The comforts of home. I kind of, yeah, I kind of kind of came away with, is is he trying to undermine the quest? You know, it's kind of like he's sort of like, offering him this temptation of staying in Rivendell and not going on. And it's kind of nefarious almost. You know, it's an interesting question because I mean, it does, um, it does really invite from that clip alone. I wouldn't think that at all, but when you think back over the rest of the film and the open animosity between, you know, from Thorin to Elrond, And the mm-hmm. um, only slightly less open hostility between, you know, from Elrond towards Thorin. Um, it is not that I could imagine Elrond doing something underhanded, you know, and trying to sabotage the quest or something. But you could see it as basically him trying to rescue Bilbo, you know. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. He feels... You know, it's hard to know exactly what his motivation is. It's probably complicated, but uh, but he, well, it seems like he feels sorry for for Bilbo, and he's just trying to give him yeah. out if he wants. And to. it's if you yeah. think about it, it's kind of a setup to Fellowship of the Ring, which yeah. is you know, it's a setup so that we understand why it would be that Bilbo would end up retiring at Rivendell. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of the benign. Yeah, and you know. and you know, another example of, um, you know. Peter Jackson and Philip Boyens and Fran Walsh going out of their way to throw in a Tolkien quote Easter egg. You know, the, you know, go not to the elves for counsel for they shall say both no and yes. Um, you know, that's not from the Hobbit, of course, oh, yeah. you know, that's, that's right. from the fellowship of the ring, but, um, uh, but 
it's a saying that Frodo presumably learned from Bilbo. So, you know, I mean, it's, that's very cool. Um, but, um, anyway, so I think that that's, um, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm actually, I'm really enamored of the, of the acting in that scene. I mean, that was, uh, um, there's a lot of face in that oh scene. Oh my God. There's a lot of face. Yep. <laughs> the amount of the, 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 the level of interchange, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the ratio of, you know, emotional content to words of dialogue was really, really high. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I just thought of another motivation for Elrond. It could be maybe he wants to learn about hobbits. Right. He wants to observe Bilbo. Because he knows yeah. Gandalf has such a high regard. Kate Neville actually points out the fact that, we, you know, we don't really know when it when that scene takes place. Uh, which could be significant, you know, after the dinner, before the light table, after the council, you know, I mean, it, we don't have a time mark for that particular scene until yeah. we get to see it in the extended edition. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. And that would, the, the, the biggest way that that would impact it, I would think, is that, of course, the other question, if we're thinking about Elrond's motivations, the biggest question is not really what are his motivations uh, as far as Thorin is concerned, um, but rather as far as Gandalf is concerned, because right. if he is thinking, you know, this poor hobbit has been suckered into going on this quest, which I think is a terrible idea, and I'd like to throw this poor guy a lifeline. If he's thinking that, well, that's, you know, an implicit and more than implicit criticism of Gandalf, who's the one mm-hmm. who's actually suckered Bilbo into it. Um, yeah. So if it's so, I agree with Kate that it would make a difference um, when exactly it happened. Well, you know, it's it's also a nice bit of foreshadowing to uh, what's going to happen in the Lord of the Rings, where Bilbo is going to go to Rivendell, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, stay yeah. with Elrond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Yana points out, of course, that it can't be after the council because they leave during the council. Oh, right, of course. Just something I was going to say, which is, you know, we do already have sort of this implicit. The, the, the fact that Gandalf feels the need to sort of secretly support the dwarves to leave, you know, without Elrond knowing about it, also sort of always implied that there was some, you know, Tension that or, he felt that he needed yeah. to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you think back to the way that, um, you know, to the the sort of the, the, the notorious, you know, cranky Elrond scenes in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, you know, and those kind mm-hmm. of uh, those kind of well snippy anyway conversations yeah. that Elrond and Gandalf have, um, right. you know, so that there is it, it certainly does exist within these characters and their relationship. It's as it's been depicted in Jackson's films, precedent for Elrond and Gandalf not really seeing eye to eye and not being you know exactly on the same page. So aligned, yeah, yeah. So that that does seem to make sense. Um, Brianna points out that Elrond didn't want Merry and Pippin to join the Fellowship either. Um, yes, in what is clearly one of Hugo Weaving's uh, instances of eyebrow overacting, um, <laughs> his 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 uh, his eyebrow, and I feel what I'm talking about Hugo Weaving's acting that I, I really feel compelled, which I never have before, to make up an adjective of the word eyebrow that is like his. <laughs> I 
brow, his eyebrovian acting. Uh, <laughs> would, would that be the adjectival form? Anyway, um, uh, uh, yeah, his his uh, his 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 eyebrovial expression when uh, when when Mary and Pippin come running in uh, is 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 I have to say a little bit over the top. However, as much as I hate to criticize Hugo Weaving's eyebrows, um, which are clearly among the most talented set of eyebrows I know. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it will be, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's going to be this, this could be, I mean, it's too bad. We're not going to get more Hugo weaving in this second film where it really could be, you mm-hmm. know, like the eyebrow hall of fame, if only Sean Connery <laughs> would do, but anyway, um, I, but now I'm digressing. So uh, anyway, so, um, but the, 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 the point I'm sure well, and and Gandalf is no slouch when it comes to eyebrows. True, true, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Especially um, the the Gandalf of the book itself. Exactly, whose eyebrows eyebrow stick out beyond the rim of his hat. The rim of his hat. Yeah, right. exactly. One of my own uh, uh, personal life goals. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, but. But no, it, it, we were talking about the sort of the the, the lack of seeing eye to eye between Gandalf and uh, and Elrond. Um, but I still do agree with Kate that the placement of it does does change something. If this exchange happens very soon after they've arrived, or you know, does it happen after they've you know they've been settled, you know, like after the dinner, and you know they've been settled in there? You know, I, it's 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 definitely is this a first reaction from Elrond or is this a, you know, I want to catch this guy before they leave. I know they leave by surprise, but still, I mean, you know, he knows they're planning to leave. Um, I, I would, I, I would be interested to see where it's placed. Um, but um, anyway, so I, I, I do think that that's an interesting question, but to me um, the way that this, talks about Elrond's unfamiliar, you know, speaks to his unfamiliarity with habits. I do find the idea that Elrond is also just kind of wanting to get to know Bilbo better. Um, again, even that picks up on stuff from the books. I mean, you, know, you think of the the line in the Council of Elrond where where Elrond says that, you know, he knows little of hobbits um, and has, you know, ha- has known none other than Bilbo and that, you know, is now from listening to Frodo beginning to think that perhaps, you know, Bilbo is not quite so singular as he had thought him. Um, is, you know, it definitely shows both an ignorance and some kind of an awareness of his ignorance of, of Elrond. So anyway, I, I think that that will be, that will be kind of interesting to see. And I, I would, I, I would be glad to see more depth in Elrond's character in the extended edition. Um, cause we just didn't, we, cause as I say, we did get so little of him in the cinematic release but um but boy i i i I thought that clip was just lovely i mean and uh yana is absolutely right when he said a little bit earlier on that uh the 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 application of that you know go not to the elves for counsel for they shall say both no and yes line in this um in this scene is is really brilliant and even sensitively done because of course you know, in context, what Bilbo is picking up on there is the fact that Elrond has just suggested two different things, right? I have heard that hobbits are very resilient, and I have heard that they like the comforts of home. Um, so, you know, what Bilbo is saying in a, in a very understated way is, so, dude, are you advising me to stay or go? 
you know, like, like do, do you think my going is a good idea or a bad idea? I can't tell. Um, and that's, I think, very well done. And and to not only convey that in an understated way as they do, but to do that through the importation of a Lord of the Rings quote, I think is very, very well done. Clever. Yeah. 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 Now, Char- Charity's asking, doesn't Galadriel offer something similar to the Fellowship when they reach Lothlorien? She does sort of, as part of her test, doesn't right. she? Right, right. Right. But see, there it is explicitly um, a test, you know, that is a test of their resolve as to whether or not they're going to go on. Um, and and that really kind of comes back to, you know, Trish, the first thing that you were saying about Elrond and his motivations here, because, of course, you'll remember, you know, Boromir openly um, questions the motivations of Galadriel when she's doing this. And really, this is something that I think. Um, this was a point actually I once heard Mike Drought make, and I think that he's very right to do it. And it's something basically fans tend to give Galadriel a free pass. Like, of course, you know, Galadriel, she is good and she is wise, and so everything that she does is good. That's not necessarily true. You know, that there's there's an argument to be made that Galadriel, um, that basically Boromir's right. Um uh, Galadriel doesn't really have the right to test them as she is. Um, and that, especially in the way that she does by basically getting into their heads and, um, you know, tempting them, um, as, as she seems to do that, you know, one can make the argument that she stepped over a line here and, uh, and that it's not, you know, that she's kind of playing God with them and, you know, she is not the Valar, you know, this is, this is, this is not really her place. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that that's, Necessary. I mean that that's necessarily my reading, but I do agree that one can make that case. Um, there is enough. There is enough to support that. I think even in Galadriel's own words, that she sort of recognize. You know, there is some recognition by Tolkien in his many writings on Galadriel, both during and after the time of the publication of the Lord of the Rings, um, that Galadriel has issues, you know, has issues that she's still sorting through and her pride and desire to dominate others and to control them, that that's one of her issues. Um, so, and so anyway, basically again, coming back to Elrond, then the parallel. So- oh, but wait, oh, but wait, oh, but wait. Okay. What? Because I, you actually, I was actually going to say this cause you, you talked through this and I was going to tell the listeners that the free um, course on iTunes university on fellowship of the ring that Corey gave last summer we talked about this very topic, right? Um, you know, and I would just wanted to share that that was a real eye opener for me. You know, this thing about, you know, you're right. Gladriel kind of is stepping across the line. And I wanted to add one more piece to that. And then we can move back to Elrond is also keep in mind that when she's testing them, she has not had her own test yet. Right. Exactly. She still is trying to decide whether or not to rest the ring or, you know, she's still in her own conflict. And I had never thought of that because I had done just like you said, you know, oh, Galadriel, she's so wonderful and stuff. So I just want to recommend to listeners, iTunes University, if you haven't listened to the course, this is one of the topics we talked about. And I think it's really worth, even if you end up not agreeing, I think it's a great conversation to listen to. Yeah, exactly. She hasn't she hasn't passed the test, and she does pass right. the test. Um, but uh, but but yeah, I mean she uh, she yeah. I I mean I do think there's definitely there's definitely a question there. But then again, with Elrond, um, you know, if if there is some level of test that he's doing, why why is he doing it? Especially given the at 
best thinly veiled animosity between him and Thorin um, uh, during that, again, how they're depicted in that first film, that would seem to make the question of his, you know, Elrond's motivations that much more complicated, you know, that much more sort of thorny to kind of work through um, because him working against somebody who is working against the quest of the ring is obviously in the wrong. Right. Right. Um, but somebody who is working against the quest of Thor and Oakenshield, um, especially say if they consider it a mad quest um, doomed to failure and possibly to cause serious troubles. Um, that's not a no brainer that, you know, that a right thinking good guy could, you know, possibly take it upon themselves to at least contemplate acting against Thorin, um, even at this stage. So, and, and, you know, so Laura, go ahead. The only thing is, I mean, that's assuming that Elrond thinks that Bilbo is really essential to the quest. Sure. At this point, it's pretty questionable how much Bilbo is actually going to contribute to the success. I mean, perhaps he's talked to Gandalf about it, but, um, you know, just from seeing Bilbo, you wouldn't think that he is going to make her, his you know presence or absence absence in the quest is really going to make or break the success of it. Now, speaking of Bilbo, Sharon makes a really good point. If we turn this clip around and look at it from and watch Bilbo, she she makes the point of she thinks that Bilbo seems way too comfortable in the presence of Elrond, you know, way too cool, way too at ease. And I can kind of see her point there, you know. I mean, he's not really um, awestruck, you know, which is kind of how I'm kind of left with in the book, is he's sort of awestruck in the book. You know, by the time this, whatever timing this uh, clip takes place, it sure looks like Bogo got pretty comfy with being around the elves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing that I would, uh, I mean, thinking about that depiction in the book, it's true, you know, with the book being told not as a first person account from Bilbo's point of view, but essentially from Bilbo's perspective, um, uh, or at least sort of following Bilbo's perspective, Elrond is given to us in the book as a distant description. You know, we get that description of him, um, uh, you know, the very general description of him, which, uh, you know, ends up with him being as, uh, as well, as kind as, as, as kind as summer in the published version, as kind as Christmas, of course, as I always think of from the first draft. Um, but, um, but anyway, again, it's, it certainly is a more remote description. You don't get the sense at all that Bilbo and Elrond have become pals, but, um, but see there, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I would wa- I would want to see the context too, and exactly. Yeah, how it, yeah that's how it true. Yeah. We're along the lines. Well, you're right. You know, kind as Christmas. I mean, Hugo Weaving's Elrond is definitely does not make me think of Christmas. No, no. Or even really of summer, for that matter. <laughs> no, no, he's pretty frosty, really. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. Is. <laughs> though, though, again, that's another thing I think that struck me so much about this clip. Elrond smiles more in that clip than I think he did in the entire Lord of the Rings film. Like all three put together. Yes. Um. So yeah. He seemed I, almost he seemed almost fatherly in there. Yes. In that clip to me. Yes. Yeah. Um. And so you know that seems to me to have a lot to do with Bilbo's. Com- I mean, there are certainly yeah. moments there where Bilbo is obviously on edge. You know, like that moment where 
he you know says the thing about saying both no and yes and then clearly thinks he's like put his foot in it and uh you know and and is clearly worried you know so you can see him kind of there's there's a certain amount of you know eggshell walking on his part um so he's not totally blase about it um but yeah Pete <laughs> points out that yes. Elrond wasn't yeah, Pete brings up it. something I was just going to say. Yeah. It's like, well, Elrond doesn't have to worry about Arwen dating yeah. Aragorn, dating Sauron. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because my first reaction when I saw the first movie, when we saw Elrond, because remember when Elrond comes to the bottom of the stairs and he greets Gandalf and he smiles then? And I remember thinking to myself, ah, we have carefree Elrond in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say uh, I'd say these aren't bad yet. No, exactly. Right. Yeah, I'd say that uh, you know his uh, he's like the father whose daughter isn't a teenager yet, except of course she's already several hundred years old. But but his daughter's fiance isn't a teenager yet, so I guess that's that's uh, that's still makes a difference. Um, you know, I'm still holding out for a, vi- a view of Estelle in the in the extended edition as a little boy. I, you know, I. That'd be cool. That would be really cool. That's that really does strike me as the kind of of you know sort of Easter egg that I can totally imagine them. Yeah. Thinking. Yeah. Except, wouldn't he be twenty seven? No, no, he'd be like oh eight or twelve or. Oh shoot! I'm forgetting yeah, the now. But it's young. I mean, it's he'd be he'd be like juvenile to adolescent Aragorn. Okay. I think. If I'm remembering that correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm forgetting my so, nine. Okay, yeah, I, I, I thought it was, yeah. Sixty years previously, and Aragorn is eighty-seven in the uh, right, and it's seventy-seven. Yeah, he's like he's like nine ten. Nine ten. I'm talking. I'm talking about the movie. Oh. So, oh. Yeah. Oh, right. He'd be twenty-seven, wouldn't he? Oh. Oh, that's right. You're right, of oh, course. Oh, that's right, because they can the time. I forgot about that. In the weird we'll have to look for a different. We'll have to look for a young man and not a, uh, not a kid. <laughs> yes, because the we do get the 60 years. The, oh. We don't have the 17-year gap between oh, right. That's right. party. You know, from the beginning, we've been – I mean, this is, of course, one of the questions that people have been talking about since years before the first film came out. You know, will we get a Viggo Mortensen cameo in, in Rivendell? And all of the book nerds have all been – you know, we've all been, you know um, – cheerfully pouring cold water on this idea by saying, no, no, that's not possible. Aragorn would only be 10. But of course, Laura, you're exactly right. Since we did not get a 17 year gap between the unexpected, between the long expected party and, you know, Frodo's departure from the Shire, then it is only 60 total years. And Aragorn says he's what, 90 something. He, he, he should be in his thirties at this point. Right. Well, he's eighty-seven in the movie because he tell he says that. Is to, that what he uh, says to 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 Eowyn? To Eowyn, Eowyn. yes, yeah. eighty-seven. Yeah. So, yeah. So Kane makes the point of we might see a twenty-year-old arriving back at Rivendell after being out with Elrond's sons, you know, riding in um, back right. into Rivendell, having yeah. Been out. No, my goodness, yeah, no, that's totally, totally within the within the alternate time universe of the peter jackson yes. films that's right that's right. totally possible yeah alternate reality first yeah. look of and maybe, love and maybe <laughs> he'll be carrying the doll 
Who knows? Okay. All right. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, okay. So um, let's see. We've got. Oh, yeah, I think we should. We should probably move on to actually talking about. Probably move on to the dragon. Yeah, we should move on to the dragons. Okay. My first question is: I want to. I want to talk in general terms about the characterization of Smaug. Um, and let me tell you what I mean by by the by by his characterization. I mean how how is his personality going to be manifested? Um, you know, we have because a lot of it doesn't even have to be in how in what the lines are what lines they give to him. A lot of it is in the delivery too. Um, I'm going to play another video clip here. It is time for a little Rankin Bass. Oh, yeah. Peter, Peter Boone, no, Peter Boone, Peter. Headlights. The headlight eyes that we alluded to in the trailer there. There's plenty and to spare. So you listen to. I did not hang on a second. Realizing why this I is so quiet. To have a look at you. See if you are truly as great as tales say. I did not believe them. Do you now? They fall utterly short of reality. Oh, smug, the cheapest and greatest of calamities. You have nice manners for a thief and a liar. Oh, I can't. Okay. All right. I, 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 I played that I was going to let it play till I couldn't stand it any longer. And I, I'm there. Well, I, I have to admit to it urge to sing, have gun, will travel with the car of a man. Oh, man. And Brianna said, the smog sounds like a drunk hanging outside a bar. He does. He sounds like a drunken thug. And the thing is, he's delivering lines which are straight from the book. It's not like they've completely messed up the dialogue. Um, but the, the way that these are delivered, smog in the book is sophisticated, urbane, understated, manipulative. I mean, those lines that he gives, um, uh, you know, uh, well, thief, I smell you and feel your air. I hear your breath. Come along, help yourself again. There is plenty and to spare. That there is... There is sarcasm there. You know, there is there is wit there. He's this is not like there's plenty and to spare. You know, I can't stand the delivery of that line. And uh and you know, and, and especially with the contrast that, that the Rankin Bass film does where Bilbo is the one who sounds like totally with it and sophisticated, um, like he's the one intellectually running circles around Smaug, um, which is just really inappropriate um 
you know, you have nice manners for a thief and a liar. Ha ha ha. You know, I mean, there's this, you know, I, again, there's this, uh, you know, I am, I, I am, I am tracking with you. I totally see through what you're doing. Uh, and I'm going to like respond with witty repartee to your obvious flattery. I mean, this is what we get from Smaug. Um, this is of course, right after, you know, the truly songs and tales fall utterly short of the reality of Smaug, the chiefest and greatest of calamities. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, even though like, you seem familiar with my name, but I don't seem to remember smelling you before. Who are you and where do you come from? May I ask, you know, the sort of the, 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 the false politeness, uh, that, that he's doing, which is, has this sort of implied insult because of the, the sort of the obvious inequality between them and the way that he, um, is kind of putting on this show of just being, you know, the polite uh, gentleman receiving a gentleman caller. I mean, again, this is how Smaug carries on, you know? And um, so again, I uh, think of the Rankin Bass um, depiction of Smaug, again, his personality, his character, uh, this is like my worst case scenario. Um, and I, I'm glad. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we have to worry about. I don't think so either. Like, I, I have a feeling Cumberbatch <laughs> is going to, he's going to just hit it out of the park. I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be very urbane. Like yeah. Yana says, you know, he was such a great villain in the Star Trek movie, you know, that if he's even a 10th of that, you know, I mean, I think he's going to be really good. I, I, the thing I'm not really happy about so far, I mean, I just, I can't see Cumberbatch with the dragon we've seen from the trailer. I'm, you know, we remember we talked about it when we watched the trailer that it seemed like it was a bumpy dragon that looked like a, one of those lantern fish. Right, exactly. <laughs> but at least he doesn't have fur for some reason. This is true. Yeah, that? I've never understood the whiskers <laughs> and the fur all down the back. What the heck? dragon it is not a mammal i'm sorry it is not a mammal <sighs> well, some of the animation choices in this movie are just a little scary yes yes they are but anyway okay okay um so again how do you do smoke so again the trick here though um one of the things that i think is really difficult um is that I think that there is a real challenge that is put in the way of this, just the fact that this is in a, that this is in a visual medium and it's going to be much, much harder for Peter Jackson to do it. Well, even than for Rankin Bass, it's easier in a cartoon. I mean, if you just looking mercifully, I will not play the audio again, but if you just look at the scenes here, you know, we've got this shot of Smaug here. Um, okay. And the super close up and the shot of Bilbo that, you know, we can just show these wide shots and we don't have the two of them in the same shot at any time. We just go back and forth between Bilbo and Smaug. Um, so in other words, there, you can, you can create the visual sense in which we have two people just talking with each other. If we have a live action scene with the full-sized Smaug talking to Bilbo, to a little Bilbo, the size discrepancy makes a huge difference. And the same line delivered in the same way between two people who are approximately on the same physical level and between one who is this giant, enormous, hugely scary looking thing and a tiny little hobbit, it makes a really big difference. So even sort of the suavity of Smaug is something that I think is going to be harder to pull off when we're looking at a huge dragon. 
saying these things. We're imagining a huge dragon saying it in the book, but that's different. Um, it's, you know, we are not, um, we don't have, the, I mean, like I'm thinking of that shot in the trailer of, you know, Smaug's head towering all, you know, by itself over Bilbo and imagining that mouth, which is right next to Bilbo and many times larger than his entire body, um, uttering some of these suave, understated, sarcastic comments, it's a little hard to imagine. Do you, do you see what I mean by this? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, though, that if they, um, yeah. you know, they don't shoot it with the entire dragon in the scene, but just have his head um, talking to Bilbo, that then it won't be quite so... It won't. It won't quite ruin that. Um, that you know that. There, it's almost like they're playing. Um, I don't know what the sports analogy is, but you know, in their conversation, they're kind of hitting the ball back and forth. Right. And right. If, if you see a giant dragon doing this with a tiny little hobbit, yeah, it's going to kind of ruin that. But if they just have, if they just have his head, in the shot, then I don't think it'll be quite, quite that bad. But see, I think we'll that see. It, we'll see it, what they come up with. I think it's quite possible that now I wonder. I wonder if the dragon is going to have eyebrows. He's going to have some eyebrow <laughs> action on the dragon. <laughs> well, he does have eyebrow ridges. He may not right. have actual eyebrows. Exactly. Well, I am. I am hoping that um, they actually because see there are ways in which the size discrepancy really can play into making it even more interesting, I think. Because again, it's it's part of Smaug's thing, right? You know, I'm gonna play the fake I'm 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 gonna pretend to be polite, right? Um I mean in you know normally and, and we see this, you know, there are jokes made about this in The Hobbit. I mean in in my book I talked a little bit about um the the whole, the the theme of politeness and rudeness and how people like Bjorn uh, who are bigger and stronger than almost everybody around about and aren't really afraid of anybody else can afford to be rude. Um, but people who are not can't afford to be rude. So if you're only the size of a hobbit, you should not be rude to an eagle while, you know, up in its eyrie at night. Um, nor certainly should you be rude to Bjorn, um, nor obviously uh, should you laugh at live dragons either. Smaug, of course, is certainly on the far end of this spectrum. He has no reason, uh, he has no necessity to be polite, and he certainly has little, there, there would be little expectation that he would be polite uh, to the thief who has broken into his, uh, into his, his, his hoard, and who, of course, has already been the occasion of him, um, you know, roaring out of his mountain and, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, crashing up and down the hillside, um, as he does when he discovers that the cup is missing. So again, part of what makes the scene really fun and amusing in the book is the departure from expectations. When it turns out, when Bilbo goes down the second time and finds out that Smaug is awake and aware of him, um, the, the immediate expectation of I think of the you know the the uninformed reader uh, that is the reader not reading the book for the 
fiftieth time, and of the and of Bilbo himself, is that Smaug is just going to react in rage, um, and instead he you know ushers him in with urbane and would be polite conversation. And again, that that's part of Smaug's thing that he one who has no reason to be manipulative, who has no need uh, to be you know understated and underhanded and um, and subtle. Uh, is nevertheless all of those things and um, chooses to deceive and manipulate rather than just smash, though he does smash also. Um, So I think that there are ways in which the film could actually um, really play on the discrepancy of the kind of urbanity of Smaug's conversation, given the, um, the sort of uh, well, sort of disproportionate, yeah, yeah, this sort of ridiculous lack of necessity for him to act like that. Um, so that could be really cool, but at the same time, I can also imagine it just it looking really strange and um, Smaug sounding really supercilious. Yeah, yeah, supercilious, not in the eyebrow sense. Several people were pointing out that supercilious, <laughs> literally, like that that the word in Latin refers to eyebrows. So the adjective supercilious could be suborned to be uh, of a referring to eyebrows. Um, oh my goodness, I kind of like that idea. Though the problem with that is that no one outside of what the thirty six people in this broadcast at this point would have the faintest idea that that's what you meant by the word supercilious when you said. Um, <laughs> If you referred to Hugo Weaving's supercilious acting, they would think you were just insulting him. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, anyway. Um, now, Pete makes the point of saying, like in the book, and I, I'm hoping we see a little bit of this, if, if not if inferred, if nothing else, that Smaug is having the conversation with Bilbo. I think the narrator actually tells us that Smaug is kind of having the conversation with Bilbo because he's trying to suss him out. He's trying to figure out what he is, who he is. I mean, he's... You know what I mean? He's, he's got yeah. an agenda in the conversation. Um, and then the other thing is, who is somebody just said, oh, shoot. Um, oh, Chris mentioned, and I've, you know, I know I had a conversation with you about this uh, before we were on air, Corey, is I believe even though we see Bilbo in the trailer, that doesn't necessarily mean that Bilbo is going to be visible to Smaug. I mean, I just, I think there still is a question as to whether Bilbo is going to be visible or invisible to Smaug. on his visits right and this is the one that that is also the one kind of proviso that i would add or that i would kind of yeah yeah well a proviso i would have to to add the stuff i was saying about how smog obviously has no need to be polite to anybody because he's not afraid of anybody there is one possible doubt involved here which is bilbo is a a species of creature smog has never encountered before you know, he smells unlike anything Smaug has known. So he is an unknown variable to Smaug. And obviously, he is a magical creature because he is invisible right now. And Smaug has no idea by what mechanism he is making himself invisible. And you'll notice that Bilbo plays up to this. In Bilbo's riddling, you know, identity thing, um, he attempts to depict himself as a creature of mystery and mysterious power. Um, you know, that he, he, he sort of uh, uh, implies that he not only has the power to turn himself invisible, but also that he can fly and that he has all of these powerful allies, you know, the, 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 the bears and the eagles 
and all these other things. So he, you know, and also, you know, he is the knower of mysteries and, 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 and all this stuff. So, um, he, his, his titles mostly sound pretty impressive. And even the ones which Smaug passes off as not sounding, uh, nearly so creditable, um, that is like the one who buries his friends alive, um, and, uh, and, you know, draws them and, or, you know, buries, you know, buries his friends and draws them alive again afterwards. Um, Again, this is still like I am the mystery. I am the I, I am the miracle worker, and there may well be in Smaug's mind just the question of is there you know could could this be true? Who and what is this guy? He might actually have more power because this could be a wizard. Um, this could be you know this could be Gandalf or somebody like him. It is possible. You think about that conversation that. Um, Gandalf and the dwarves have in Bag End in the film about how many dragons Gandalf has killed, right? I mean, th- there is that precedent for wizards as dragon killers, which, as I think I've said before, there's precedent for, you know, in the um, in the in the first drafts of Chapter One of The Hobbit, Gandalf is said to have turned dragons inside out before, um, you know, that he is uh, he is a an, an accomplished vanquisher of dragons. Um, in his career. So, you know, maybe, maybe in the book, we are supposed to be thinking that there is at least that little element or potential element of doubt on, uh, on Smaug's part that he's actually trying, trying to figure out. Though at the same time, it also seems to be vanity, you know, that he, it doesn't really have any doubt that he can handle this intruder. Um, and he is pretty convinced that he's going to smash them. And this is just a preamble to smashing them anyway. And in reality, he just wants to kind of satisfy his own personal curiosity before he smashes them because, you know, he's just kind of curious and he wants his question answered uh, by this creature before he destroys him. So, um, so anyway, I do think that that you know there there is that element, and I would be interested to see if they play that up. Now the thing is, having Smaug glimpse Bilbo visible undermines that. Um, if he's seen Bilbo, he's unlikely to be afraid of him even after he turns invisible. <laughs> um, I would think. Um, so it would be harder to see them, unless again this you know kind of gets back to what we we're saying about the Elrond clip, um, the shot that we saw in the trailer of um, Smaug seeing him, if we do run with the assumption that Bilbo is in fact going to be invisible during the conversation with Smaug, does that, uh, does that face-to-face that we see in the trailer happen before or after? I think theoretically it could be either. Um, but uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Chris Lawson just said he has to go because there's an earthquake. Chris oh, is in no. New Zealand. An earthquake in oh, New Zealand? Oh, I hope it's not too bad. Me too. Goodness. We have never had a natural disaster happen in the midst of a broadcast before. No, no, and we don't want to start now. No, we don't want to start now. Yeah. We don't. A couple of the listeners are comparing um, Glaurong, you know, Glaurong Tour and Glaurong Neonor to Bilbo's smile conversation. Um, Like Tom is saying that it would be interesting to compare the two and see what they tell us about dragons, um, especially from Tolkien's point of view. I mean, it, there is, there's a lot of difference. I mean, Glaurong actually had a specific mission 
I mean, it was, a, it was really kind of different, isn't it? I mean, contextually, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, but it, anyway. I, agree. Well, it is, I have no ending to that sentence. It <laughs> is, but, but Glaurung is, is calculating, just like Smaug is. Exactly. I, that cunning nature. I totally agree, Laura. That's what I was going to say, too. Um, that there is that similarity of the devious mind. Both of them show that kind of deviousness. Um, dragons are associated in Tolkien's world um, with cunning, not just with greed, but with cunning. Um, and although they do have very great power, um, you know, both just their pure physical strength and, and uh, you know, their breathing fire and all that stuff, um, it's it's the deviousness and cunning uh, uh, of their minds, which is one of the most dangerous things about them. We see even the, 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 the kinds of spells that Glaurung casts, that is how he induces amnesia in Neonor and how he sort of paralyzes Turin and um, deceives Turin in the way that he does. Um, all of those things still seem to be really expressions of the power of his mind. Um, he looks Neonor full in the eyes and she looks him full in the eyes and his mind just overwhelms hers. Um, not to, not quite to the point of just snuffing it out, but close to that. Um, he just overloads her and, um, and, 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 you know, they have a little battle of minds kind of like the battles that we see Aragorn having with Sauron, um, you know, Gandalf having with Sauron, um, uh, you know, Gandalf sort of struggling to deflect Sauron's mind from discovering Frodo upon Amon Hen, um, Gandalf and Saruman. We see lots of different examples of those kinds of, you know, conflicts of wills and conflicts of minds uh, in Tolkien's world. Um, Glaurung is really good at it. And Smaug does the same thing too. That, of course, in the more juvenile language of The Hobbit is what the narrator means when he says that Smaug had a rather overwhelming personality. Um, you know, that's a sort of a comical understatement. Um, Glaurung had a pretty darn overwhelming personality too and completely overwhelmed um, both Neonor and Turin with it uh, at various points. Now, did, wasn't, wasn't Glaurung kind of also invested directly with, with some of Morgoth's power? Yeah, I mean, I, I always got that impression there was there was some of Morgoth was sort of, you know, empowering him directly. Yeah. Um, no. Yes. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, well, sort of. It's it's hard to say. I mean, the the passage in the Silmarillion about the dragons and the, you know, sort of the because of course Glaurung was the prototype. Um, and so the presumably the things that it says about the creation of the dragons um, would apply to him. The the evils, you know, the, and, and the reference to things like, you know, that then he spoke the first time Glaurung ever speaks. Um, it says in the Silmarillion, then he spoke by the evil spirit that was within him. Um, and it's uh, a little hard to, uh, to know exactly how to take that. That is, right. it is his spirit in him, which is evil that permits him to speak or is there some external evil spirit operating within him, which permits him to speak? And is that even conceivably in some sense, Morgoth's spirit acting within him? Mm. Um, that, you know, what I, I can imagine somebody taking that line that way. And, and I don't, I don't think, I, I don't really think that that's right, but I don't think I could totally disprove it definitively. Um, 
because there we do get those clear references to Morgoth kind of dispersing his own will and his own personality of right. his servants. So um anyway, it's yeah. that's kind of a complicated question. And Smaug obviously we don't we don't have that factor directly involved, obviously, but um but we do get that same kind of going back to the similarities, we do get that same tendency um, in Smaug as in Glaurung to, to dominate and manipulate first and smash afterwards. Um, so, um, so anyway, I, and that is again, coming back to then the question of how this is going to be done in the films to what extent are we going to get that? Are we going to get any kind of, you know, semi-hypnotic effect? Are we going to, I mean, Martin Freeman is so good, you know, as we were saying earlier with his facial acting, are we going to get from Martin Freeman any kind of like, I am being put in a trance, I am being, you know, I, you know, I, I am at risk of, you know, being drawn in, um, uh, you know, by Smaug, is that element going to be involved um, or are we just going to get banter from the two of them? Cause in the book, again, it's not just banter. Um, Bilbo is trying to deflect Smaug and Smaug is trying to manipulate and ultimately um, to pervert and dominate Bilbo. Um, that's what's going on in that conversation. To what extent are we going to get those kinds of things going on um, in the film? Um, or are we just going to get repartee simply? You know, Gabriel brings up a point which also I wanted to talk about too. It, it'll be interesting to see if the Turin dream shows oh up. Boy. Yeah, I would love it. I would love it. Didn't that I would, that didn't would impact that episode, conversation. But I would that, that that I would like that to be the opening sequence of the film. Didn't oh, you say that? I think oh, you did. Yeah. Yeah. If not, let me say it again. That would rule. <laughs> That would absolutely rule. If the first scene of this film were a fight with Smaug, which ended with Smaug being stabbed and killed, and then Smaug wakes up from the dream, uh, man, I can't even tell you how happy that would make me. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. That would be a great way to do it, yeah. Boy, yeah. that would be awesome. Um, I, I've got a question about dragons. Somebody asked me this earlier. Who, Which dragon was considered the greatest dragon was it was it glaurung was it um and caligon yeah i mean there are really only three candidates no it's not I mean, yeah well, well i guess four in that you know the, i mean think of the the number of named dragons that we know of are quite few um and in fact there's a there's four Scala right? the, the worm yeah uh the one that Scala. yeah yeah the one that graham kills is that it? I can't think of a fifth named dragon. I mean, obviously, you know, in other books, but not in not in Middle Earth. Um, I was going to say if you can extend Middle Earth to, you know, to yeah. become, it was this world we have Chrysophylax. and well, I just right. I had to say that just simply because I like to say Chrysophylax. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> or the Great White Dragon from Roverandum, but um, but no, oh, right, right. no. Think, thinking only of um, thinking only of. Middle Earth dragons. You know, the way that the way that Gandalf throws out the name of Enkalagan the Black certainly suggests that he is the tops. Um, you know, Gandalf throws out his name to say, um, not even Enkalagan the, the Black could melt the ring. Mm. Um mm-hmm. 
So he's clearly bringing him up in a superlative context. Given that Gandalf is looking back at historical First Age dragons, as in Caligon was the dragon killed by Eärendil during the final, you know, the the the, the closing scenes of the War of Wrath, um, presumably, and Caligon is greater than Glaurung, um, or else Gandalf would have said Glaurung uh, in, in making that claim. So then the only question would be, is, would, is Smaug greater than Ancalagon? And I gotta say, no, I think that Smaug is, he's kind of a big deal, kind of self-delusional too. I mean, he, uh, um, that's part of, that's part of the irony of, of chapter 12 of the Hobbit, you know, is, um, that Bilbo is there. There is, of course, a very real sense in which Bilbo gets the better of Smaug in the conversation because he sees through him. You know, that line that Bilbo delivers to himself, not to Smaug, you know, old fool, um, you know, when he sees when he sees the bear patch in his armor, um, Smaug, Smaug is undermined in the middle of his great boast. Um, boasting about how how invulnerable he is, his vulnerability is revealed. Um, so I think Smaug is clearly not greater than Ancalagon. So I think based on the evidence we'd have, we'd have to go with Ancalagon. Um, but um, but anyway. Um, yeah, that's that's who I would have thought too. Yeah, yeah, probably. So, but um, yeah. but anyway, now, I, got, I gotta say that I'm really looking forward to Martin Freeman's delivery of his you know string of names. I yeah. mean, I really hope Jackson leaves. I, he may not leave it completely intact. Like, he may take Clue Finder out because he figures people won't know what that is. But I really, he's got to keep at least 80% of that in. Yeah, it, it will be interesting. And especially, you know, it kind of leads me to a sort of a more general Bilbo <clears throat> point, uh, thinking towards film too. I'll just be really interested to see if Martin Freeman does Bilbo significantly less bumbling, um, you know, that kind of stammering, I'm totally unsure of myself and feeling really self-conscious thing that Martin Freeman does with Bilbo so often, is that going to be reduced? Is that going to go away? Um, yeah. Well, you'd have to think so because they're, they're saying this is going to be a lot more serious, more a darker movie than the first one. So the, so that kind of acting, I think, would be played down a little bit. And Bilbo also is more—he's proven himself more from the from the first film. He's right. More of the hero, so he can't really be so bumbling. And of course, that's one of the things this about this scene in the book is that Bilbo. Um, this is the one moment in the book when Bilbo gets too tookish. You know, it's it's really the only time when his tookishness. Uh, exceeds his bagginsishness um and that is when he is overconfident he is he he is flippant he is um he believes that he can handle smoke um so that's what i'm going to be really interested to see if there's if martin freeman is going to do any of that element of um bilbo uh just thinks he is too much for smoke um and that he can easily uh, twist Smaug around. And, you know, this is what Bilbo chides himself for, you know, never laugh at live dragons, Bilbo, you fool. Um, he realizes that he was dumb. He realizes that he was overconfident. Um, but it's hard to see Martin Freeman's Bilbo being overconfident, especially yeah. confronted with Smaug. Yeah. 
I hope they do. I hope they do leave that in there. Yeah. It would add a little complexity to to Bilbo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah Daniel makes an interesting point about um, Smaug. Um, uh, it says... Um, yeah, uh, uh, D Daniel was pointing out that he really likes uh, Rob Inglis's Smaug voice uh, in the audio recording, the audiobook recording, because it shows how Smaug cannot hide the true beast, despite his mannerism and attempt to have a smoothing, tempting voice. The beast is always present, um, and that's I mean, that's Tolkien makes that point about dragons. You know that they are, you know, they are highly intelligent. They are. Um, you know they 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 have this overwhelming personality, um, but all, they do remain beasts as well, um, and that's one of the things that's really scary about them. Um, so I agree, Daniel. I think that that's a really interesting um, element of the characterization. That it, that that again, it will be interesting to see because again, that's it's one of the things that I would worry about if we get a visually really striking dragon. Um, I can easily imagine a huge scary looking dragon on screen with a human voice coming out of him. And even if it's Cumberbatch's voice, it just seeming not to fit, you know, the voice did not fit with what we're looking at. Um, and, uh, and again, I, I'm assuming they won't have that problem, but certainly um, it's a, it's a challenge that they have to overcome carefully. Chris Lawson just uh, just piped up and said that it was a 6.2 quake, Ooh. and uh, he's okay, but they're being sent home. Oh so yeah, he's going to have yeah. to hear the rest of this later. Yeah. Well, Chris, we're glad I'm glad you're okay. Wow, um, 6.2. That's that's not a joke. Um, wow. Yes. Oh, and Yana was reminding me earlier that of course we I did broadcast in the middle of a hurricane once so i guess i can't say there was no natural disaster but <laughs> oh that's right, uh, that's right. <laughs> Assume we that one you knew about yeah exactly it wasn't a surprise <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that was me though i mean that's you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah certainly um yeah uh, thoughts and prayers for uh chris and everybody in new zealand that everybody's okay over there um yeah um Boy, you know, Brianna was saying that Cumberbatch is a villain in another piece, too. And, uh, you know, he seems to be really good at this villain stuff. Yeah, well. He's uh, a double no. villain in, in The Hobbit, you know, both Sauron and Smaug. I mean, the guy's, you know, the guy's kind of going to get typecast. <laughs> well, and this is, uh, this is one of the things that I find so fascinating is just thinking of, I mean, as as Dave and I talked about long, long ago, I mean, I still have to assume that at least in their initial conception, maybe they've changed it. Maybe they're going to pull a bulge on this one and, and change their minds. But clearly in their initial conception, they had lines for Sauron. Um, they wouldn't have cast somebody as Sauron if they didn't. So certainly not Cumberbatch. So um, what are Smaug's lines going to be like? And how similar or different are they going to be from uh, from, from yeah, Smaug's lines? I mean, you know, we've, we get those two, the Smaug and Sauron connection. And of course, making a connection between them seems appropriate, you know, it would seem interesting. But um, anyway, so yeah, I think that that's, uh, um, 
certainly Cumberbatch in general is uh, one of the things I am very excited about for this film. And I, and I, you know, Sharon asks if they're going to alter his voice somehow, you know, I assume there will probably be some effects, but at the same time with only a few exceptions, they seem to have been reluctant to do that. They seem to let the actors just kind of handle it. You know, um, I mean, I think of like they're 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 the audio effects that they did on, um, you know, Goadriel when she does her, you know, uh, in place of the Dark Lord, you shall have a queen, you know, <laughs> like you know, and they do like the you know reverb effects and stuff on her voice there. But I'm trying to think of you know other places where they have actors cast, especially well-known actors cast, um, and have their voices you know, altered throughout, you know, just as a staple part of them delivering lines. I don't think they did that anywhere. Um, well, now just, they had, um, I mean, Treebeard was John Rhys Davies, but that wasn't very, I mean, that he wasn't in the movie that long. I mean, like you're talking about like for the whole length of a movie, right? Right. Well, but even there, I mean, was his voice wasn't, wasn't oh, digitally was altered. Modified? Right? I, I can it I don't seem like so. it was different enough. Well, yeah, maybe not. Maybe he just. I think it's him doing the right? voice. He just modified it himself. Yeah, well, three three of you have said this at once. Was his voice modified? Sharon says it was. Okay. Mm. Okay. Let's see there. Well, so so maybe we have then a precedent for one of them being and not the other. Um, be I mean, my guess though is that they did that because it was because they didn't want it to sound like they're talking to Gimli. Yeah. <laughs> They didn't want us to to catch on that they were saving money by having (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, So, you know, maybe maybe you modify one and not the other, in which case, which one? Um, I would guess it would be, I would guess it would be Sauron, but... um, The one with the fewer lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing that actually I hope does not happen that you just made me think of when you were talking about Smaug and Sauron, I hope they don't make a connection between the two, you know, along the lines of what I was earlier positing with Morgoth and Glauron. Right. I mean, I really hope he doesn't do that, that there's any kind of inference that there's a connection. between. You know, what I'm actually thinking of is like with Theoden and Saruman speaking through Theoden in the movie. Remember how right. Jackson did that? I mean, I yes. hope they don't do something like that. No. Uh Wow, that would be dreadful. Wouldn't that be awful? And that prospect never even occurred to me. Thank you very much for that. Oh. <laughs> idea. You, cannot, you cannot now unsee it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, yeah, and then like Gandalf comes in and does an exorcism of Smaug, and they're like, great, we've got the necromancer. Oh, wait, crap, we've still got this huge lizard on our hands. It didn't help. Um, uh, yeah, and, and he's pissed. Right, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I could, I could, I could see that though, because uh, maybe they're doing a little riff on the Morgoth Glaurung thing, you know, to have a, a little bit of yeah, Sauron oh, in, in this dragon smile. A little bit of Sauron. In, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, see, but the oh, thing yeah. is, is for there to be some kind of connection between them, um, that is, in the sense of some kind of correspondence between them would not be inappropriate at all. I mean, that's exactly what Gandalf in the quest of Erebor says that he was afraid of, Um, you know, that, that he considered an alliance between Sauron and Smaug, you know, very natural and possibly inevitable. Um, 
so to, you know, for them to have, depending on where they're going with the necromancer um, in these films, depending on how fully developed they're going to do Smaug's or Sauron's character in these films, it, it, it could entirely work to have Sauron sending an emissary to Smaug saying, Hey, so um, I got a job for you. Do you want to, do you feel like smashing Rivendell? Does that sound like fun? Um, Can we, can we collaborate on this? Um, And then, you know, maybe, you know, uh, the, the destruction of Smaug over, um, you know, over Lake town happens like in the nick of time that we see a plan beginning to unfold and we could basically see dramatized in the film, what Gandalf says in appendix a, the fact that, you know, the two of them would have worked together, but that was prevented thanks to the quest by, you know, you know, thanks to his meeting with Thorin, basically thanks to the fact that Thorin and company went on this, went on this mission. We could actually conceivably, we can actually see that dramatized. You just um, got your revenge on me. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, Smaug on the way to destroy Rivendell got offed in Lake Town. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, not not necessarily en route. Like, hang on, I've just got one errand to run, and then I'm off to Rivendell. Uh, <laughs> well, may, maybe they'll discuss that when they're on their when they're on their return visit in the third movie. Maybe they'll. Maybe by that time they will have discovered that the yes. necromancer was Sauron yeah. and they'll talk about that's, Oh, it's a good thing that smell was taken care of. Actually, yeah. I more than half expect that I'm more, more than half expect um, some kind of equivalent of not, not equivalent, but I, I would expect lines to be lifted from that speech of Gandalf's in appendix a, that thing, which was, or yes. was going to be mm-hmm. the, um, mm-hmm. you know, the end of the quest of Erebor. Um, uh, you know the like, you know, but fortunately, that's all been prevented thanks to this. I, 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 I suspect that's going to make its way in. That Gandalf is going to do some kind of retrospective. Now that we've kicked the necromancer out of Mirkwood and discovered who he was and killed Smaug, looking at it now, who boy, that that could have been ugly. You know, this. I'm sure we're going to be grateful later on that we did this. You know, or that this. So, yeah, I mean, I do, obviously it's not going to be able to be given from the full point of view of hindsight that we get, um, you know, at the end of the Quest of Erebor, or at the end of, you know, in Appendix A. But, um, but I do think they're probably going to go there. So, yeah, to what extent that's going to be involved in the plot, if we're going to get any kind of communication or attempt at communication. Again, I'm not saying it would necessarily make for a great film, but it would be plausible within the parameters that, yeah. that Tolkien lays out for what is going on or, you know, would have been going on behind the scenes. Um, I'm just thinking, I just see Jeremy asking some questions here and I'm just thinking that some of the folks listening might not be up on the quest of Erebor. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so you might want to maybe explain that. Yeah. I just, just a, a quick, cause I uh, just a, a quick uh, reminder about it. The quest of Erebor is of course the, you know, if you, rem- if you've re- read the appendices and you remember at the end of appendix a, um, that is the end of the section on the dwarves. When we get that retrospective scene of Gandalf and Gimli and Frodo and some others sitting around in Minas Tirith afterwards and talking about, you know, looking back on, uh, on, the quest and Gandalf making those comments about it's a good thing that, uh, you know, Smaug was killed or else, 
the War of the Ring would have turned out very differently. Um, well, those comments were originally, Tolkien originally wrote a very much longer, or planned at least, a very much longer appendix uh, than that. And he had them asking him, Gimli and Frodo, asking him to tell them the full his version of the full story of how the whole thing came about. How did he alight on Bilbo? And, um, and uh, you know, how did he end up getting connected with Thorn? And, and, and what's Gandalf's whole perspective on it? Um, that was ended up being cut from the appendices. Tolkien, uh, Christopher Tolkien published it in um, Unfinished Tales um, under the title The Quest of Erebor. Um, so that's so when I'm talking about that retrospective point of view, I mean from a chronologically post War of the Ring point of view, looking back on the whole story. And that's what we're given in The Quest of Erebor. Um, and of course, there are many reinterpretations of the story that are invited by Gandalf's point of view, as Tolkien articulates it in the quest of Erebor written, obviously much later than the Hobbit. Um, uh, you know, many of those things on which I think Peter Jackson is obviously drawing for his depiction. So anyway, and of course he can use that line. He can't use some other lines from the quest of Erebor, um, but he can use lines that are in appendix a because it's in the Lord of the Rings. So. That's right. Uh, that could work. And so, yeah, t I mean, and, and so according to the quest of Erebor, then Gandalf was aware that Sauron was rising again and that he was concerned that he would enlist Smaug. And so Gandalf claimed that part of his uh, his own purpose in uh, fostering the quest was to try to do away with this threat of this dragon, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, um, yeah, anyway, I, I do think... Basically, I don't think that... Okay, in the movie, he doesn't know that he's Sauron. So that's... Well, he doesn't know yet that he's Sorry. Sauron. Though, again, presumably, right. the discovery that the necromancer is really Sauron is going to be one of the things that's happening in the films. Um, yeah. You know, this is what we've been expecting. And I think, I mean, it has to be. You know, given that we have in film one them talking about this necromancer in Mirkwood and having no idea who he is or what he's doing... We have to get from there to the, you know, setting up for the War of the Ring and Sauron openly declaring himself before the War of the Ring. So clearly, um, that discovery is going to be made. Um, so, but then once he makes it, I, you know, I, I, I would expect him then to make the further connection. Yeah. Wow. In retrospect, given that that necromancer was really Sauron and all, you know, I think we really dodged a bullet here, people. You know, with the death of the dragon. Holy cow. That could have been bad. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I mean, I, I actually, yeah. I am, I am, I, I would predict that we'll hear something like that in film three, um, but, um, but I, I think there's going to be too much to do, certainly in film two, to be doing any kind of an elaborate, you know, conspiracy between Sauron and Smaug subplot. I just think it's going to be too much. But yeah. I don't know. Gabriel just said exactly the thing that was on my mind. We're an hour and a half into the episode. We should probably get to the riddle at some point. <laughs> ah, Gabriel, you, you must be new here. True. Uh, <laughs> true. Just kidding. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We should we should totally get to. Okay, so here we have a fair amount of setting up of the riddle. That's true. Here, so we should definitely get to the general subject of the riddle, and the general subject of the riddle is on how they're going to do Bilbo's. How they're going to set up Bilbo's encounters with the dragon. That is, in particular, how are they going to do Bilbo's encounter with the Horde? Um, I'll tell you our, in advance our specific question. The question for our riddle this week is, 
how many times is Bilbo going to enter the Horde of Thror in film two? Now, you remember in the book, Bilbo goes down and uh, goes down to the Horde on three separate occasions. He goes down the first time after the secret door opens. Smaug is sound asleep, uh, having his dream, and Bilbo steals the cup and comes up after his departure. Uh, after Bilbo's departure, Smaug wakes up, gets really mad, flies around and makes a lot of noise, um, and then settles down again. Bilbo goes down the second time. They have their conversation. Um, uh, Smaug tries to fry Bilbo and uh, only barely fails and then sneaks out and smashes the side of the hill. Then Bilbo goes down to the horde the third time in the company of the dwarves after Smaug's death, though they don't yet know that Smaug is dead. So that's just a, a, a little reminder recap of how this happens in the book. So the question is, how are they going to do these things in the film? How many times is Bilbo going to go down there? Um, our options, I guess I might as well tell you our options since they're not complicated. Um, our, 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 but I should, I should, I want to add one thing in there is our okay. question has to do with by way of the secret door. So how many times will Bilbo go into the horde by way of the secret door? By way of the secret door. Our answers could, yeah. Yeah. Just, well, and we'll right. Play yeah. With it. Yeah, okay. By way of the secret door. How many times will he descend to the horde by way of the secret door in film two? And the so so the options would be A, the book answer is three total. Uh, B, two. C, one. D, more than three. Uh, so like D would mean basically <laughs> Bilbo sets up like a commuter line down there. And, you know, like gets a timeshare uh, at Thor's Horde and visits on weekends for a couple months. Um, I can't even imagine. This is what I mean. I will. I will. I will say, um, without um, uh, without dissimulation, that uh, uh, that th- th- that we. I, I can't imagine D being true. Um, D is strictly our rounding out the list answer. Yes, right. We have our <laughs> theoretical possibilities covered. But to in fairness, um, in all fairness, at least one such answer, which we only included for the sake of thoroughness, turned out to be correct in film one. So, That's true. you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Yana says he's starting to take the treasure one by one, right? Exactly. He's to, he, yeah. he, he starts on the shuttle trips with the, with the treasure. Well, the thing is, that happens in the earlier drafts. Tolkien was already reducing the trips down. Um, in the in in the first draft of the Hobbit, I'm talking the the not the earlier editions, the earlier published editions, in the unpublished drafts of the Hobbit, um he originally went down like three times. Like he went down and stole a cup. Then he went down again and stole something else. And then he went down the third time and had the conversation. And then they went down again. And there is, there, there was a scenario in his, in his notes when he was thinking it through that they actually were going to steal a couple loads of gold and, and be trying to bury it on the mountainside and, uh, and everything. And then eventually he did away with these. So in Tolkien's own revision process of this scene, he was systematically reducing the number of trips because they just sort of seemed to be redundant. I mean, there was no, there was no additional purpose for them. Whereas clearly the two different trips that the two different solo trips that Bilbo makes 
um, play very different roles and have have different purposes. Um, so there's there's a clear reason to have those still remain separate. But that's not to say that a filmmaker who is more compressed for space um, uh, d- might not decide to compress them further and uh, and have a total of ha- have a total of two. Um, so um, so 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 basically, those would be the options. Are we going to see the three? Of course, one of the one of the sort of side points to this is: Do we think he's going to steal? a cup is he is he going to steal the golden cup are we going to get the beowulf moment uh in the film or not what do you guys think do you guys think we're going to get the beowulf moment i, I tend to think not I, what do you think I, laura i think we will you do i you? think we will well yeah because there'll be a riot in the theater <laughs> <laughs> No gold cup and, is stolen. And I will say that last year, one of the reasons I scored so low was because I didn't have faith that Jackson would do stuff according to the book. So you're probably right. I, I think you. I think the cup will will stay in. It's not a hard thing to leave in. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I think he'll definitely and and he'll need something to show the dwarves too. Well, unless, un, okay. Here's one possible scenario. One possible scenario is he goes down. Peter Jackson rolls together visit one and visit two from the book. So he goes down to explore. Smaug is not asleep. Smaug, or Smaug is asleep and wakes up while he's down there. They have their conversation and he doesn't have that moment where he comes back and shows something to the dwarves. Instead, he runs back up to the dwarves and says, everybody run. The dragon is coming and then follows an action sequence that I could easily see happening in the film. Um, but um so he doesn't, I mean, as Sharon says, he can't show them the Arkenstone. That's true. But, uh, but he can, um, but again, I don't think he has to necessarily show them anything. He can just tell them everybody run, here comes the dragon. Um, and that could conceivably be enough to move along with, uh, and to motivate them. So, um, it says maybe, yeah, I think, I, I, I think, well, I tend to agree that uh, I guess I'll give my answer. I think there's just going to be one trip. I think they're going to compress the cup trip and the conversation trip into one. But I do think he is going to. Um, maybe we'll make that our conundrum. Is is this week? Is the uh, will the cup show up or not? But I think he will have something to bring back to show the dwarves. Something that the dwarves can look at while they're huddling in their in the in the cave. Um, you know yeah maybe maybe well okay first of all let me say that i am not assuming that the sequence of the dwarves and bilbo entering the mountain together is necessarily going to work out like it is in the book um i think it's entirely possible that that that's just going to happen differently I, i i could imagine for instance um the dwarves not going underground into the mountain, but being, you know, even scattered, some of them on top of the mountain, some around them, you know, them, them coming around and taking refuge elsewhere. And some of them coming in by the front gates. Um, You know, I'm assuming basically what, one of the things that, that informs my, uh, my reluctance to assume that the book narrative is going to be followed closely there 
is the fact that that scene, the scene of Smaug attacking and the dwarves running away and taking refuge in the mountain, the scene as it's depicted in the book would not be a very satisfying action sequence in a movie, I don't think, at least not on the scale of the action sequences that we got in the first Hobbit film. Um, there's, it fits the dwarves in the book. Um, that is, all they can do, because all they're qualified to do in the book, is run away. And they run away successfully. Um, you know, but the dwarves in the movie are not so big into running away. Um, and it's a little, you know, I'm wondering if we're going to get any combat, any attempts to actually fight Smoke, um, rather than just let's take refuge underground and let him smack and close the door behind us. Remember Bilbo convinces them to close the door, sealing them into the mountain before Smaug smashes the mountainside. Um, I can't imagine the film dwarves being like, oh, let's just go into the, into the mountain and close the, in, in, into the dragon's den and close the door behind us and sort of sit around here meekly. I don't see them doing that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's true. That's true. And um, Yana says that Peter Jackson already said he thought the book lacked a confrontation between the dwarves and Smaug. That's right. He did. Well, especially with the way that Thorin's character has been built up. Um, and, you know, that, that element of Thorin wanting vengeance on Smaug for what Smaug did is present in the book. You know, he talks about bringing our curses home to Smaug in chapter one. But you can't shake the fact that when they actually get there, he clearly has no plan and doesn't seem to have a very strong vendetta. He's still focused on the treasure. You know, let's let's get the treasure. Let's send the burglar down to steal treasure, apparently, because that's what burglars are for. Um, but he doesn't seem to have any, you know, and they're sitting there talking about dragon slayings and how you do it as if they had never thought of that. You know, and, and Bilbo's pointing this out. This is always, he, he's, he's felt inclined to point out that this had always been rather a weak point in their plans. Um, it's impossible for me to think of movie Thorin, to think of Richard Armitage's Thorin as never having given any thought to what he would do to the dragon. You kind of get the impression that, you know, especially thinking back to that scene with, you know, young and angry Thorin at the forge that we get in the opening sequence of the Hobbit film one, um, that he's doing a lot of picturing of what he would do to Smaug given the opportunity. So, you know, I think it's very likely that we're going to get some combat between the dwarves and Smaug, though how that emerges with nobody killed, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess if they did the goblin tunnels and the you know fall down That's like true. a thousand feet Take with stories. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine that they would try to confront Smaug as as he's flying around the mountain. I would think that they would think about going down to his lair, maybe getting him in, in close quarters. Right. Uh, right, exactly. I mean yeah. um yeah, I could even it's you know, you can't imagine Book Thorin really, um, you know, saying, I mean, he doesn't say and doesn't seem prepared to say, hey, guys, let's all sneak down together, ambush Smaug while he may be asleep and kill him. 
you know, I mean, like he has that opportunity, you know, when they first open the door and he's like, let's send in the burglar. Um, so whereas movie Thorin, absolutely. I can see this. I mean, don't, doesn't that seem like what Richard Armitage's Thorin would do when the oh, secret totally. door opens? Well, plus it's his home. I mean, this is the home he's been trying. I mean, why on earth would movie Thorin send Bilbo? You know, he seems like he'd be the first one. You know, he'd want to be the first one through the door with his with his sword out. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Now, Sharon says, uh, or it will just go further to increase Thorin's ire that he didn't get the chance to fight Smaug. And now he's really hankering for a fight. <laughs> no, Sharon, I would bet that that's going to come up in film three. I would be surprised if you know because this is not something that really gets emphasized in the book you know in the book we have um you know bard kind of parading himself as the dragon slayer you know you owe me um you know i i am due a share of the treasure because i i killed the dragon you know and the dragon slayer surely is owed a portion of the dragon's hoard um but there isn't a clear, at least in the book, I don't get the sense that Bard is rubbing that in Thorin's face. Um, but in the film, you know, again, with as touchy as film Thorin is, and as um, as 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 large a picture as Thorin has of like, you know, the boy who would be king, the guy who feels like he should be king, who's trying to reclaim his lost status, who's trying to reclaim his lost kingdom. Um, for some human to come to him and say, so yeah, that dragon that conquered your kingdom, yeah, um, it was me that killed it. N not, by the way, you. Um, so why don't we talk, Mr. I'm sitting up here defending the mountain as if I conquered it, when in fact you did nothing, chump. I'm the one who killed the dragon. I mean, I think that is going to rankle. I agree with Sharon that that's going to, that that's going to make things, I, I, I would suspect that's going to contribute to the tension um, when it comes time for the siege of the lonely mountain later on. But to what extent that plays in here that, you know, we're going to get a near confrontation or would be confrontation between Thorin and Smaug or even Thorin talking about like, I can't wait to get a crack at the dragon. Here's what I'm going to do when I'm, when I confront the dragon and then have him be just, you know, biting the heads off of nails that he never gets the chance to do it. Um, I don't know. I, because again, how is he going to be denied the chance unless they send Bilbo down to scout things out and everything just goes, you know, haywire in that one try, um, you know, that, that mm. Bilbo ends up. That could be. I mean, yeah. Thinking about the yeah. Tool, that know, could the be the out. Yeah. 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 I don't know. But I, but I do think it does add a significant new dynamic, I think. Um, and uh, now, but she, here, Yana, this is an interesting point. Yana says he might send Bilbo because the dragon sickness is starting to affect him. Maybe, but of course, if the dragon sickness is starting to offend him, he might not send Bilbo. Um, that is, he might be less reluctant to say, okay, burglar, do your stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's again, I think to me, it's one of the big, it's one of the open questions um, that I, that I have a hard time predicting given the way they've altered Thorin's character. Um, how is, how are Thorin's that? Cause Thorin is quite passive in the book other than that one moment when he gets his one awesome moment of leadership. 
you know, when he, when Smaug is coming around and, 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 uh, and they're all scrambling around and Smaug orders, um, Balin and Feely and Keely and Bilbo to get into the tunnel and says the dragon shan't have all of us. I mean, that's, that's Thorin's best moment as a leader prior to, uh, his final charge. But other than that, Thorin is kind of a cipher in the whole, you know, dragon sequence in the book. Um, he doesn't go after the dragon. He doesn't, uh, you know, he, he reassures Bilbo that they do really intend to pay him. Um, but, uh, but he's not really very heavily involved until again, he emerges as a, as a more active character once they're down there. And then he, he starts doing his, you know, the horde is mine and I am King. And Oh, by the way, where's the Arkenstone? Once we get into that element of Thorin, um, then he really comes to the fore again, but he's kind of not, um, he's not a big factor before that. Whereas again, film Thorin has got to be a factor in one way or another. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah. You guys still there? You totally stumped. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would. I'm I here. Just, I was waiting. I mean, I, I, I'm used to you taking taking long pauses, so I right, just figured right, you were right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was gonna say. So uh, I have to go because. Okay. Uh, yes. We should let you go. My son is not seeming to go to sleep like he should uh, be. So I've got to get him to, to bed before it's ridiculously late. So what's your answer? Yeah. My your answer, answer is you. my answer is B. Uh, B? or okay. I'm sorry. Uh, C. One. One visit. Okay. One visit. One total one visit in one visit in movie two. In movie two. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Where and they're and they're gonna compress I guess I just don't see a real reason to have two visits, especially when you've got so much going on in movie two. Well, of course, I think they're going to try to stick it in, in the one. That is another factor of course, is that the, um, one of the implicit questions underlying our riddle is about where we think the movie is going to end. Um, if you think the film is going to end prior to them being, you know, say we assume the film is going. The films are going to have Thorin and company descending and being trapped in the hall, like they are in the book. In what is the third visit in in in, in the books? Is that sequence, if it does happen in the films, is it going to happen in film two, or is it going to happen at the beginning of film three? Um, so, so th- that that does factor in as well. Yeah, I'm. I'm... I'm uh, thinking one because I'm thinking the movie is going to end with the death of the smog. Okay. That's, that's my thought. So, all right. Good. Well, well it was good. Good to talk to you all. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. I will talk to you soon. Okay. You certainly, certainly will. Thanks, Laura. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Well, see, now I, I'm of the opinion that we're not going to have the death of Smaug until the beginning of movie three, which, again, I know that's a separate episode. And, yeah. you know, I may change my mind by that time, but I'm just thinking that we're going to be kind of left hanging with regard to, you know, the dragon's going to take off, but, you know, we're not going to see his death until then. Um, and I'm actually wondering 
now after you talked just now about you know how the dwarves could be with regard to confronting the dragon and stuff, I'm also wondering if maybe they. Well, no, I guess not. I was going to say maybe they know that the dragon's dead. You know how that might be a change, is that they know that the dragon's dead even when they're down in the horde. But I guess that really can't be since Bard's going to kill him. So never mind. It's it's late. I'm starting to, you know, my, no. my brain. Here's, well, actually, I want to, I want to address this uh, question that Steve just asked. It's a really good one. Um, Steve says, what what would a viable plan look like should Thorin have uh, ha- have voiced one? We're going to lure him in here and drop a rock on his head. What <laughs> <laughs> exactly? Um, what exactly would happen? Um, I, I'm not sure what a viable plan would look like, but I can imagine. Remember that Thorin is would likely would be likely to have something like a home field advantage here because presumably he's going to you know he's going to know Erebor inside and out so i can imagine thorin saying okay huddle up people let me draw you a schematic of this hall and like these places around <laughs> it so this is what we're going to do we're going to wait till the dragons asleep we're going to we're going to sneak down here you know i've i've drawn you know uh Feely and kiwi we're going to i've drawn little x's where you're going to be in these niches from which you can shoot at him we're going to do this down here we're going to try to draw him in here and then you attack him from over here and then you get when 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 he comes over here then you guys jump out of there you know you could see Thorin doing yeah. this kind of thing yeah. um, and trying to take advantage of, you know, like the architecture of the hall or to, you know, to, to basically try to, you know, I mean, obviously any kind of frontal assault on the dragon is, you know, you're going to be the underdogs in that exchange and they've got to know this. But, um, but I think that it is possible that Thorin could propose something a little bit better than let's just go down there and start a fight, you know, um, well, and, you know, actually what we're basically inferring, I think, in our conversation here is that the whole scene at the Lonely Mountain, you know, during this period, you know, pre-Battle of Five Armies, is going to be very different from what's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, see, to me, Thorne's character is the number one thing that seems to be necessitated. Yeah. Because that's the one thing that – I mean – because I, you know, I, I do like to do this. You know, I like to, th- I like to think about it and say, okay, think of the book plot, and is there anything in the book plot that simply wouldn't work on in 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 the film, like that he just couldn't do it this way, you know, given you know for one restriction or you know given to one restriction or another, or given what he's already done um, in you know in film one. Um, what would be the options? What would be the scenario? And for me, the answer to this question is Thorin. You know, Thorin is the main difference. I can't see things working exactly as they did in the film because Thorin isn't active enough. And he's not just going to sit around and send Bilbo around and then say, okay, now we have no idea what to do. Um, Pete makes a really interesting suggestion. Pete says, maybe Bilbo will sneak down, see the bear spot and tell Thorin who will then plan an attack based on the, based on the bear spot. And this then leads me back to Sharon's previous idea. Maybe that, maybe that does happen. Maybe Bilbo comes back and says, yeah, there's this bear spot. And uh, Thorin says like, okay, great. 
We can totally capitalize on that. And then Smaug ends up flying off to Lake Town and somebody else capitalizes on it. And there's Thorin being like, dang it, you know, that was my plan. I was going to do the shoot him with an arrow in the bear spot thing. Um, <laughs> so, um, Curses. Yeah, so I, 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 I do, you know... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That could work. That could totally work. Especially if Bard kind of gently rubs it in um, <laughs> later on. Um, so, yeah. So, no, I mean, I, so can I see Thorin proposing an attack? Yes, I can see Thorin proposing an attack. Can I see uh, Peter Jackson sc- screening an attack, an action sequence with the Dwarven Party and Bilbo attacking Smaug? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I can, I can oh, see that. Uh, in a heartbeat, I can see that. Does that mean I think it's definitely going to happen? No, I don't think it's definitely going to happen. Um, I can, I can see, th- and one way to prevent it happening, you know, one alternative to an extended, you know, dwarf smaug encounter in the, on the mountain or in the mountain would be the precipitous departure of smaug, which would be facilitated by the compression of Bilbo's visits. Right, right, um, right, right, right. But... Now, Jeremy has pointed out something that I did want to make sure that we said, which which is what makes C a viable answer. Um, Jeremy's actually saying he's going to go with C, and he says, one visit through the hidden door, and then the dwarves attempt to fight or flee down the mountain and find themselves at the front door, as you mentioned before. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why C is a possible answer. I, I, I agree. Jeremy, I think that's a very possible scenario, because here's what I can see. I do think it's unlikely that Smaug is go- that they're going to descend into the mountain and attack Smaug inside the mountain. I don't think that that's going to happen. It could, but I don't think it's going to happen. What I could see, though, or rather what's hard for me to see, is to see Smaug flying around and coming to attack them from the outside and all of the dwarves simply hiding and not attempting to fight back at all, not even taking one shot at him from the doorway. Um, rather, what I can imagine them doing is you know thorin urging them to take defensive positions even planning some kind of you know ground to air anti-dragon uh defenses prior you know in in the event of smaug's attack um which they then deploy when smaug comes to attack so that combat sequence happens but happens in the context of smaug attacking them and smashing the door the door still gets smashed, but they're on the outside because they've been outside. They've been outside defending against him. I can absolutely see that happening. Um, so, um, and that could very well lead to them all having to come around in by the front door. And so, therefore, we do get the C answer. I absolutely can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also. The other thing that makes C a possibility, even without that, is the fact that we're talking movie two here. Yeah. You know, depending on how movie two ends, there still could be a, you know, a visit to the Horde, you know, by Bilbo et al. in movie three. And that does not count for this riddle. Right. Exactly. That would still, that would still not count. Okay. Well, here's the other question then. My other question, and we don't have time for a very long conversation on this point, but the question is, when does the Arkenstone come in and how? Oh, yeah. Um, if, because remember in the book, the Arkenstone is stolen during visit number three. Um, now, there's nothing that says 
the Arkenstone can't operate in that same place under almost any of these scenarios. That is, if there's only one visit and then a second one, you know, basically there are only two trips down and it's this, you know, so they compress the first two into one. And then the second trip down is the one where they all end up trapped down there and Bilbo, and then Bilbo finds the Arkenstone. That could happen. There's no reason to say that Bilbo can't still find the Arkenstone when he's there visiting it with the dwarves. Um, if they come in by the front door, but, um, but of course there is always the possibility that Bilbo steals the Arkenstone on visit number one, that he steals the Arkenstone instead of the golden cup. Yeah, no, that's right. It could be in lieu of the cup. Um, and you know, that's on the one end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, it could be like, like it is in the book on the final trip, you know, when everybody goes in and he sees it and pockets it when nobody else sees him do it. I mean, it could happen either way, really. I guess, you know, I mean, we know what's going to be happening with the Arkenstone later. Is it, is it better to introduce the, reintroduce the Arkenstone in movie two, or is it better to wait until movie three from Jackson's point of view to have the Arkenstone show itself again? Mm-hmm. Well, I expect to see it. I don't think that necessarily means I expect it to be a major player, but I expect to see it. Um, because, because it's alluded to in the trailer. Um, ah, right. That's right. So That's right. since it seems to be, it seems that it's going to be, since it appears that that weird line, which disturbed everybody in film one about the divine right to rule, um, is not going to be an isolated throwaway line, but in fact, going to really feature in this plot. Um, since that's going to, since that appears to be the case, I think it's going to show up at least so we can have some kind of continuity right. when it comes right. back, you know, with a vengeance in film three. Right. But again, but that doesn't really prove anything. I mean, even if that does happen, that, that could be accomplished simply by a glimpse of it sitting amongst the horde. Kind of um, like the eye of the dragon at the exactly, end. <laughs> exactly. Right. We don't, we don't even have to see it burgled by Bilbo in order for there to be some kind of continuity. Right. Um, right. But, um, yeah, Kate says it, uh, it might well make an interesting ending to, to film two. Bilbo picking up the Arkenstone. Uh, and Pete was just thinking the same thing too. Uh, I, I think that that's possible. Um, I, uh, I can definitely imagine that. Um, yeah, yeah. That would be among my, uh, among my top candidates for closing scene. of yeah, two. Yeah. But, but. Um, but I wonder. If, <laughs> this is why, the, listeners. This is why we did not include the Arkenstone in the riddle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Too complicated. So, well, what do um, you think? Shall I go ahead and say I don't know what mine is. I mean, I'm between B and C, and the reason I think I'm between B and C has more to do with the splitting of the movie. You know, I mean, could yeah, like do we just have the one trip and then movie three, we, we get a second, you know, the second trip. I don't think, I just don't think there's going to be three trips. I think they are going to compress. Um, I too think that three is unlikely. I think that, I think that the book answer is an underdog in this yeah. case, especially since visit one and visit two would be really trivial to collapse together. And you wouldn't even lose all that much. Right. And so, and um, I mean, even almost all of the elements from the book could be retained. That is, all of the elements of the Bilbo Smaug confrontations 
could right. be. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, um, uh, I, I expect that that will probably happen. So I think that, that a is, is definitely in my view, an underdog, not impossible. Um, I'm going to go with B mainly because Laura went with C and we need some controversy. I mean, I think it could be either B or C, but I'm just going to go with B to B and I could, I could. I mean, I can still see it. I can still see Wiss having like the two visits, the first visit by Bilbo and the second by the whole company. Um, and I realize I'm saying through the secret door. So that kind of leaves out the. The front gate thing. You know, yeah. The front gate thing. So well, I think that I I'm probably wrong. <laughs> the first thing that I start with is I think that we are going to get Bilbo and the dwarves inside Erebor before the end of film two. Oh, you do you? Okay. I do. But I but for the for, for our riddle, it's do, do they do it by the secret door or do they do it some other way? Exactly. So for me, that that remains my question. I'm pretty convinced that A is not going to happen. Um, as funny as it would be if D turned out to be true, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and we're going to get Martin Freeman, you know, making fun. Running up and down. Hang on, I forgot something. Um, uh, <laughs> But um, I know I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so then to me, the crucial question is, since I think they're going to be down in Erebor prior to the end of this film, do I think they're going to go down by the secret door or not? And I right. think that they are. So I'm going to go with B also. So you're going with B also. Um, I think that mostly because... I, I think it's not impossible that the party gets divided. Um, it's a little bit hard for me to reconcile uh, because it's hard for me to reconcile um, a, an immediate flight by all of these dwarves in the film. It's hard for me to imagine Smaug is coming. So we're all just going to scurry into the tunnel and hide. I can't see these dwarves reacting that way. Um, so therefore they're likely to spread out and fight. And it's very hard for me to understand how they're spreading out and fighting and then somehow all getting into the tunnel before it is collapsed by Smaug. That's difficult for me to picture. So I could imagine some of them going down and some of them coming around by the front door or something. Maybe Thorin and Bilbo get separated in this way, or maybe Bilbo alone is down. This I could well, also... that's the thing. I mean, remember that our, our riddle is specifically Bilbo. So even yeah. if all of the dwarves ended up going through some other way and Bilbo went through the secret door the second time, that's that counts as a second trip. Right? Because you see, this I can easily imagine, that all of the yeah. dwarves spread out and assume they're like battle stations and try to fight off Smaug and, and doesn't work and Smaug ends up smashing the secret door. Bilbo, however might well be hiding right within the entrance right. of the secret door while the uh, while the improbable dwarf to dragon defensive combat uh, goes on. Bilbo perhaps quite plausibly thinking he doesn't have too much to contribute to the combat. But um, but then Bilbo could be trapped alone and that would then make it easier for him to get the Arkenstone and then he um, he finds yeah. him and in some ways I actually kind of like that if that happened, I think symbolically that could work in some interesting ways. I'm not saying I'm necessarily predicting a second solo trip down, but I can, um, but I can imagine that. And that would, that would work with it. So anyway, I'm going with B. This one's going to be interesting. You know, I mean, I, 
I don't know why I think as I, I look back, I, I was thinking this was a pretty straightforward scene for the movie. You know, it's like I hadn't really given it much thought, but boy, after this conversation, I mean, this thing could be, there's any number of ways this whole thing could play out once yeah. we get to the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and who knows, I will laugh so hard if the answer ends up being D. That <laughs> absolutely hard. <laughs> of course, you know, there's another possibility. There's another possibility that the book answer ends up being accidentally correct. That is that they, in fact, depart quite significantly from the plot of the book. And yet Bilbo ends up going down three times. Um, so we could end up having a non-book book answer, essentially, for this one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, like, say he go, he sneaks. I mean, this is basically what, what, what Brianna is suggesting here, I think, that Bilbo goes down alone, steals something, comes back out. Um, the, all of the dwarves go down and Bilbo um, to try to attack him. And then they're chased down and the door is smashed and they end up going down there the third time for good. Um, that could conceivably happen and it would be very unlike the book. And yet the book answer. Um, Brianna points out that Bilbo must also come up at least once so that the thrush can learn of Smaug's weak point to inform Bard. Yes, unless we go the Rankin-Bass route I was have just the thrush that. come down with him. Into the <laughs> and there's plenty of room for a thrush and the thrush could leave by the front gate. So, you know, he'd be fine. We could see him emerging from the, from the, from the front gate and flying over the river. From the rubble. He, he emerges from the rubble. <laughs> <laughs> Brianna's, Brianna's response is no <laughs> Brianna, is that just a general reaction to the idea of this film going a Rankin Bass route is that is any, it, do you have a any Rankin Bass route <laughs> yes yes okay I, I was suspecting that was uh, that was the source of your reaction okay um, by well, the way I must say any listeners who haven't seen the Rankin Bass Hobbit you should watch it at least you know just once just because we make so many references to it. Yeah. And it is, some of it is just so, I mean, like, like what he played tonight about the dragon. I mean, you just oh gotta see goodness. it. So, oh. you know, just, just, just steal yourself and watch it. It's only 90 minutes, so it's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I mean, and let me say for the record, I don't hate everything about the Rankin Bass version. I mean, it is so much, it is so easy to make fun of and so much fun. It's, to make uh, fun. it's easy to poke fun at yeah. uh, that, you know, there are actually things that I do really admire about it. Um, but, um, the, uh, the, but they don't come to mind. No, um, no. The, I mean, the main thing, the main thing I love about them is the, is the, is, is the songs. The songs in the Rankin Bass version are brilliant, with the one very notable exception of the theme song. But other than that, um, <laughs> other than that, the, 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 the songs. I love the songs in the Rankin Bass. I think they're, I think they're absolutely fantastic. But um, anyway, so there. I'm saving for year three. I'm saving my rant about how much Rankin Bass makes Bilbo out to be a coward because yes. he hides in the battle. And I, oh my still, goodness. Yeah. It still irritates me, so, but we'll do that next year. Cause that's battle of five armies. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm looking to see what we've got for answers here. So, um, so Daniel has said C, I believe. Ooh, this is an interesting reading of C. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel says C is the cup and the conversation happened together. So it goes down once, uh, uh, takes the cup, has the conversation with, with Smaug. And then when Bilbo attempts to go back to warn of Smaug and the tunnel collapses before Bilbo makes it to the end. So Bilbo never emerges and is cut off from the dwarves. 
uh, that way. That's interesting, Daniel. Now, of course, we have the thrush problem. Somehow, uh, I mean, needless to say, this is assuming that the thrush thing is, I don't want to break anybody's heart and even whisper the idea that a thrush is not going to land on Bard's shoulder and whisper to him about the uh, the, the the bear spot in Smaug's armor. Um, I, 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 I assume that everybody else like me is hoping against hope that that will certainly happen. So um, anyway, in this film, the part of the thrush will be played by a moth again. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, Daniel says, no, it's fine. The thrush flies out before Bill. Be right. That would assume that the thrush comes down with him again. Um, which, yeah. I I I gotta say it's not just an anti Rankin Bass sentiment. I don't think that based upon how they depicted, especially I mean the thrush. Of course, we've seen the thrush. The thrush appeared at the end of film one, um, and of course they were they seemed to me to be at significant pains to say. I mean he was acting just like a regular bird. I mean there was nothing that looked particularly special other than the fact that he was fulfilling an omen and was therefore a bird of omen. He did not seem to be any sort of, you know, a particular special and magical species of thrush as Thorin suggests of, of the thrushes of the mountain um, in the book. Um, so having the thrush, this is the problem of course, with the thrush in Rankin Bass is that the thrush in Rankin Bass appears to be like one of the best informed characters uh of all of them. He's a um, sentient thrush. Exactly. A fully <laughs> sentient thrush who is, uh, who is like merely, I mean, Bilbo is kind of along for the ride. It's really all the thrush, uh, you know, who, who, who actually accomplishes everything. Um, but anyway, um, So I'm looking to see who else here has said, let's see. So Daniel said C. I think earlier I noticed, was it John said B. So he's going with B, which is, you know, taking a risk since you and I both said B. Okay. Yeah. Brianna says B. All right. Well, don't need brave hearts taking, taking us up on D. <laughs> Come on, people. Everybody's, everybody's wise. On this. Are you a bunch of wimps here not willing to say D? How dare ya? I mean, hey. Yes, Kate, Kate asked, this is trips through the secret door only. Yes, yes, trips through the secret door only. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And also it's, it's Bilbo, but it, it doesn't. I mean, it's Bilbo. Bilbo is the is the in, essential ingredient, but there could be dwarves with him. In other words, you know, it's it's not Bilbo. It's not how many times Bilbo alone will go in. It's how many times Bilbo will go in, whether he's accompanied or not. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. I, I feel like I have to do my due diligence here. I haven't done my normal thing where I provide a a plausible narrative for D. So I've here it is. Okay. Okay. Here's the D narrative. Bilbo sneaks down, maybe steals something, maybe her doesn't, but he returns really quickly. Like he just gets a glimpse and runs right back. Um, and he's like, yep, uh, there's a dragon down there and it's really scary. And then Thorin is like, Bilbo, you wuss. Like, fine, we'll show you how it's done. We're going we're gonna to go down there and we're going to like show this dragon what for. So all the dwarves come down with Bilbo on the outskirts 
and they attack the dragon or attempt to attack the dragon. And then the dragon ends up flying out and they go back up and um, uh, this doesn't end in disaster somehow. And next, okay, this is the weak spot of my narrative. But then after this, Bilbo sneaks down a second time and is like, okay, fine. So like, I'm not going to be a coward. Like I'm not afraid to go down there and then has the conversation with Smaug. And then they take refuge in there later on. That is four trips. Totally perfectly plausible. Okay. That didn't quite work out exactly, but anyway, (laughs) you you gave it, you gave it a good try. I, 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 it's close. It's close. You know, I will also to defend, you know, Laura's choice of, of one is, uh, you know, this thing that we've talked about from the get go, which is how are they going to get everything into the movie? Um, you know, having there only be one visit in this movie and, and moving some of the stuff off to movie three, you know, is believable because they have so much stuff they have to cover in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, we've had that conversation. No, it's many, true. And uh, that is why I, that, that, that's the main reason why I would think that a large number would be implausible, but yeah. Um, but you know, there, 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 there could be a couple quick trips. <laughs> it's quite possible. <laughs> um, All right. Okay. Well, well, we should we should go soon. We are over even our normal irresponsible amount of time, and it's I know it's late for those of You're us. You're even later than you normally go in a lecture. It's true. I am later than I normally go in a lecture. Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm, you're, you're more overtime than you usually go overtime in a lecture. <laughs> exactly. Being, being, exactly. Being, um, being, uh, being in Eastern time where Laura is in Central time, I have the slight advantage of her in that I was able to put my kids to bed prior to uh, the beginning of the broadcast. Point. In fact, this is, of course, why 930 is my, uh, is my, time. Is my yeah. time for class, uh, for my Mythgard <laughs> classes uh, and evening things, is that is... After I'm, taking, I'm taking the philology class. It's going to be so strange after being with you late night classes, you know, to do a Friday afternoon class. It's going to seem really strange to that's me. True, yeah. You're going to be in the GMT class. So That's right. The sun will be out. It'll be weird. Absolutely. Speaking of <laughs> Yana says the sun is beginning to rise oh. over there in Europe. So there we go. There you go. All right. Um, well, we should so sign off, I guess. We should huh? sign off. So uh, one last one thing, of course, that I wanted to mention that I cannot forbear to mention um, before we sign off. Of course, as most of you will have seen, uh, we have officially launched the Mythgard fundraiser on Indiegogo this past week. Um, I just wanted to sort of do a little report on that. It's been really exciting. Um, we have just uh, during our broadcast actually passed forty-eight. Is uh, uh, it's been like you know just just is it, wait forty? What's today? There's it's three days now. It's been just three days um, of our fundraiser, and uh, we've already we've almost hit sixty percent of our goal already. Um, so it has been really wonderful. I am um, hoping that we will be able to um, to do. Uh, to do very well there. My goal would be to be able to do uh, these classes year round. So just for those of you who haven't seen the fundraiser yet, what what we're doing through Mythgard, I would like to launch uh, a new series of basically totally free and open to the public um, informal classes. So these would not be classes for MA credit, um, but these would be classes like the Silmarillion Seminar, essentially, um, to be able to do those. And I want to let people... Um, let our supporters decide what classes we do. So 
Um, you know, we'll do, um, you know, the, the, uh, they'll be open for anybody to sign up for, but the people who have, uh, supported the fundraiser will get to, to nominate and vote on, uh, the classes that we'll do. And we'll do as many of them as we can, you know, got to be able to, uh, to pay for the platform. And, um, and also we might get, uh, you know, guest lectures, that is people who are not me, uh, to teach some of these classes. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that can be one of the things that people can request, you know, would you like to, um, you know, to discuss your favorite book? And uh, is there a, is there a, you know, a scholar or professor you would like to discuss them with, you know, we can propose that too and see if we can make that happen. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I would love to be able to, to see this happen uh, for quite a bit. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. I have been um, wanting to find a way to do, um, to, to have more, of this kind of stuff available uh, to the public for free um, for a while. So I, you know, we decided to try doing the Indiegogo campaign and that's been, uh, um, that's been really, uh, um, really successful so far. And I'm really, I'm really happy to see this. I hope to continue the momentum and, uh, and uh, you know, it would, you know, ask you to, to consider supporting us even little bits help. So, you know, definitely check us out on, Indiegogo, you can find uh, links. If you go to the MythGuard website, you can find uh, lots of links to our campaign. Um, and certainly on the Tolkien Professor Facebook page and Twitter account, you see plenty of links around there too. So um, anyway. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. The campaign, right? And we're yeah. 60%. Yeah, exactly. So um, and the more we do, the, the, the more we raise, the more we can do. If we raise, um, I mean, if we blow way past our goals, um, what I would like to, we could do other special events. You know I mean? I'd like to yeah. do, uh, you know, we, we could do, uh, free and open to the public guest lectures by, f uh, famous authors and things. I mean, yeah. would you like to, um, to be able to do an open Q and a with somebody, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman or Jim Butcher or somebody like that, we, we could do that. You know, I mean, I think that's, if we had the funding, that's definitely something we could do. Um, so um, that would be good. Yana says, a European myth moot. Um, Yana, Maybe. we're thinking about it. I will tell you, Yana, we are thinking about that very seriously. I can't promise anything, um, but a European myth moot uh, could actually happen. Um and that's definitely later. That's yeah, true. that is definitely something uh, I'm I'm working on that. So, yeah, Kate says we could get George R.R. R. Martin in his copious spare time. Uh, exactly. We and Dima just got back from Rome, so she's voting for Rome for a European myth. <laughs> there we go. There we go. That'd be lovely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, cool. So anyway, so I just wanted to 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 definitely make sure you guys all knew about that. Um, I, I, I encourage you to uh, um, to look at our campaign uh, and support us at least spread the word if you can. Um, you know we are we are definitely excited about being able to kind of take uh, take our public offerings here uh, to another level and really sort of expand what we can make available to people. Um, and to borrow a page from PBS, I will say any amount. I mean, even if yeah. it's low as five dollars will help. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I mean, let everybody know, you know, get as many folks. And, and, and I just want to say it's not just for me, 
it's not just the, the, the content of the courses, but it's this whole educational model that Corey has been developing. You know, I mean, I just think high quality education, you know, out of in, people doing it out of interest. I mean, it's just, it's a, I think it's just something really worth supporting and hopefully will be something that will become replicated as we prove the concept. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it is, this is definitely something that, you know, um, you know, that I am excited about for the future, you know, not just for what we can do in these classes, not even just for what we can do in, you know, Tolkien studies and the kind of democratizing of, of, you know, Tolkien studies that I've been, uh, you know, wanting to, 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 to work on ever since I started my podcast, but even for, higher education in general. I mean, I think that there's a lot um, that is going on. And I really think that, that, you know, Mythgard and Signum University can really be a, a big part of that. Uh, but, you know, we do need people's support. So anyway, um, uh, so we will, we will be, you know, we, we will be reminding you about that uh, more in the future. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but definitely just wanted to remind people to, uh, to, to check that out. Um, cause I'd be very interested to see, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what kind of classes people would want to do. I mean, I have in my own mind, you know, the list of things that I would do if, uh, if I could just choose, you know, a full year's worth of discussion classes to have. But, uh, but I am very, you know, I am, I am, I am determined to, uh, to follow through with my pledge to leave this to the people. So I'll be interested to see what people choose. It's, it's, it's for me kind of a fun thing. To you know, to uh, to sort of imagine uh, being a. Steve asked, "Can we pay? Is there a way to PayPal it, or is, is uh, it absolutely? Not? Yeah, um, Steve, uh, the Indiegogo accepts both uh, PayPal and credit cards. So that's actually, in fact, PayPal is is preferable, honestly, because uh, if uh, you. Um, contribute by PayPal, we get it right away. <laughs> if you contribute, yeah. we have to wait till the end of the campaign. Um, so, uh, so yeah, absolutely. It is PayPal compatible. So um, um, by all means. Um, but anyway, well, very good. Well, thanks everybody again for joining us. This has been, uh, this has been a, a long but fun uh, discussion, which has covered a lot of different ground. Um, we will probably find, we've been kind of talking around this subject for a while. We will probably get around to discussing the end, uh, you know, the end stage of the film. And in the context of that, uh, really, um, you know, to me, what discussing the end of the film really means is not just kind of the, the minutiae of, you know, at what precise moment or, or with what scene does the film end, but rather what is the overall shape of the plot arc of this film going to be? Um, how do we really see the overall structure of the story that film two is telling unfolding? Um, to, to me, that's really the big question that goes into underlying, that really goes into the question of where it ends. And I'm really interested to kind of step back a little bit and think about that more. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's probably what we will do next time. I so said we've been putting that off for a while. Um, no promises, but that's probably what we will do. So I, we will see you guys in two weeks-ish. Uh, <laughs> not been very regular in our times our schedules have been a little wacky lately but um um but uh uh but anyway two weeks uh but anyway two weeks thanks again for joining us everybody and and as always thanks for listening and godspeed